Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. Let's pray. Lord, as we enter into this passage and into this new book, may it deepen in us, may it stir in us, may it shape us as you would have it, Lord. Um, May you speak both in my words and despite my words. And may you make it be your living word in us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning we get to start the book of Ecclesiastes. And how many of you love the book of Ecclesiastes? Okay. Okay. Does anybody, this, they've never read it before. This is their first time through. Okay. All right. So no total newbies, um, but we are in for a treat. So let's uh, start with just a little bit of introduction. If you don't know where the book of Ecclesiastes is, Kyle, you can go to the next slide. There's our overview of the Bible there. We are in the Old Testament. And if you're going through the Old Testament, you can start with the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Then the 12 books of history, and then we get to these five books in the middle called Wisdom and Poetry, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and there is Ecclesiastes right in the middle there. Um, So this is what's called wisdom literature, and the way that wisdom literature works is not necessarily to present you with exact right answers that are always true, but to teach you how to think, and that's actually really important. How to discern, how to know when to choose path A versus path B. And because of this, because it's not just here's the right answer all the time, wisdom literature can actually be contradictory with itself. And that's actually part of what it means to learn to read wisdom literature. So famously, we have a passage like Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you you yourself will be just like him. Got it? Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Got it? So sometimes one's right, sometimes the other's right. And that's actually part of what wisdom literature does. Or Proverbs 4, 7. Get wisdom. Though it cost you all you have, get understanding. All right, got it? Ecclesiastes 1.18, the conclusion of chapter 1 here today. With much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. So in other words... It's not necessarily about one being right or the other being wrong. It's about actually knowing when to keep pursuing, when to keep learning, and when to shut up the book and go outside, right? That's actually part of what it's doing in us. And even Ecclesiastes, as we'll see next week, will play with contradiction within itself. Chapter 3 will say there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. So wisdom literature is not necessarily about giving us the right answer, but knowing which season you are in. And Ecclesiastes is probably the most skeptical voice in Scripture. Someone could contest that, but it's definitely up there. And so if you're a happy-go-lucky optimist, Ecclesiastes needs to be that kind of counter voice that speaks to you. And kind of rounds you out and challenges you and challenges an overly sentimental faith or a faith that just relies on easy answers or a faith that thinks that things always work out if you just believe. Ecclesiastes will really push on that. And likewise, if you love Ecclesiastes, I know we tend to be kind of the depressive, sad crowd. So for those of us who love Ecclesiastes, like love it, enjoy it, let it shape you, let it deepen you. But also it's one voice in Scripture. 
So don't let it be your whole worldview, right? Let the less, the rest of scripture actually round you out. And if you love Ecclesiastes maybe a little too much, your homework throughout this series is going to be to reflect 10 minutes a day on this picture of Tim Tebow. There he is to kind of push you in the opposite direction. Just in case you forget, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So got it? That's kind of the way wisdom literature works. That's the way the Bible works. Let's be honest. Like you have your skeptical voices and then you also need Tim Tebow up there to remind you in the opposite direction. So as for who actually wrote this book, complicated question. Anybody have an answer? Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? What's that? David? Solomon? If you keep going, uh, Kyle? Verse 1 says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. The author of Ecclesiastes never gives a name. He says that he's the teacher, which is the Hebrew word kohelet, which means a member or leader of the assembly. And if you know your biblical Greek, which I know you all do, the uh, Greek word for assembly is ecclesia. It's the word we, it's the word for the church, and which is how we get to this title Ecclesiastes. If you've ever wondered why this is called Ecclesiastes, that's where it comes from. Um, the, the author never names himself, so and and a lot of modern commentaries will just call him Kohala. That said, as you all noted. Who is a teacher, a son of David, who is king in Jerusalem? Solomon. Solomon. And the traditional author of this book is Solomon. You're supposed to read Solomon on top of this. That doesn't necessarily mean Solomon wrote it. In fact, he's kind of being used as an archetype, right? Like if you still wanted to write a modern morality tale on why like riches and pleasure will not make you happy, Solomon would be a pretty good figure to use, right? And so that's probably what's going on here. Not necessarily that Solomon wrote it, but Solomon's being used as like a type, as a literary figure to show you the kind of pointlessness of all these things. Um, and in fact, we like our best guess based on context clues is that this book was actually written much later, somewhere between 450 BC and 180 BC. 180 BC is the first time we see it referenced somewhere else. That said, Kyle, if you want to go to the next one. When was it written? You go all over the place. If it was written near the end of Solomon's life, that would put us somewhere around 940 to 930 BC. If some later son of David, who was king in Jerusalem, wrote it, because, you know, they also had a lot of money and pleasure and those sorts of things, that would put us anywhere between 930 and 486 BC. And again, our best guess is somewhere between 450 and 180 BC. That said, one of the lovely things about Ecclesiastes is it's pretty timeless, right? The thing that this author is speaking to have held up. It's kind of amazing that this ancient book of Hebrew poetry speaks pretty well to what it's like to be alive in the 21st century. So on some level, pick whichever one you want. And whatever helps you engage with the book, go in. That said, Ecclesiastes 1. You guys ready to dig in? Okay. So when I started doing pastoral ministry, most of the people I was working with were 20-something millennials. And that's still sometimes the case, but things have spread out a little bit. But I noticed pretty much every millennial I met was given this message. You are special. You are uniquely talented. You will change the world. 
Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a message that's kind of been received in our, in our culture? And you'll notice up there, I call it the millennial curse because the more I was working with people who had received this message, the more I found that it wasn't actually a liberating message. Pretty much everyone who was striving under this, this kind of calling was depressed and disappointed. Depressed that they hadn't gotten further along. Depressed that they hadn't changed the world. That the world was still this pretty broken place. Depressed at how big their student loans were and how expensive groceries actually were. And how far behind it seemed that they were on this mission that they were supposed to change the world. You guys know what I'm talking about? Can anybody relate to that? Maybe you're not a millennial, but I think this stuff kind of like radiates throughout our culture, right? We've been given different versions of it. If you just work hard, all your dreams will come true, right? That the only factor in success is hard work. Or as Walt Disney would say, if you can dream it, you can do it. Like if you're not succeeding, if you're not changing the world, it's probably because you just haven't dreamt enough, right? Or John Wayne telling you that if you just have enough grit and elbow grease, you'll rise to the top, right? These are all different kind of versions of this same thing. That it really is on you to go change the world. Or to succeed, or to be notable, or to rise to the top of your profession. So as you think about that, whatever version of that narrative you probably carry with you, let's read Ecclesiastes 1 again. And see what Ecclesiastes 1 has to say to that narrative. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we'll read a big chunk of it. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. I feel like the old King James. What did people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, they, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear of its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. How's that feel? A little, a little depressing, right? And it can be. But I think if we let it, it actually can be wonderfully freeing. And so here's the good news I want us to have this morning. You're probably not going to change the world. Amen? Amen. <laughs> I know this was the inspiring message you were hoping to get at church this morning. You're probably not going to change the world. If Ecclesiastes 1 is true, 
The earth's been around a long time. It was broken when you got here. It'll probably be broken when you leave. You're probably not going to change the world. And again, you can probably find lots of scripture that kind of pushes in the opposite direction. And if that's too depressing, here you go. Yeah, there you go. You can, you can balance yourself out with some Tim Tebow. But I invite, I invite you to take this on and let it be at least one voice in your life. Maybe not the only voice or maybe not like the voice that trumps all of our voices. But hear this. You probably are not going to change the world. Amen? So what do we do with that truth? First of all, number one. Kyle, you can go to the next one. Keep going. Shut the heck out. Seriously. That part of you that's just on a hamster wheel that constantly feels like you should be doing more, that you should be further along, that you should have already changed the world, that you're probably too old already. Like, just let it go for a second. Maybe that voice is not actually from God. You're probably not going to change the world. The world was broken before you got here. It will be broken when you leave. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. Maybe it's God's job to fix the world, not yours. So I invite you to be liberated from the crippling expectation that that's your job. So before we go any further, just just take a second to exhale. Give yourself some grace. You're not hopelessly behind. All is well. reason it's not actually a good goal to try and change the world is because you're setting your goal on things that are actually out of your control. Ecclesiastes will actually spend a lot of time on this, right? Like, you might be the most extraordinary person in the world and get done in by a health crisis. You might be a phenomenal musician and just not get the breaks. You might start the best hunger relief program in the world and get shut down for political reasons. You might start the best business and lose it all because your employee did something negligent. You might be the best parent in the world and your kid still has free will. You might be the most freaking awesome entrepreneur, visionary, pastor, whatever, of all time, Instagram influencer, and be done in by things that aren't in your control. Part of what Ecclesiastes will, will call us to realize is that Things happen. In the PG version, poop happens, right? And so they say that if you, even if you have really big goals, you actually have to reduce them to what you can actually control. For one, if you set your sights on being this famous person or changing the world, research says you'll actually always be unhappy because it's an all or nothing goal and you'll never actually get there. But two, you're setting your sights on things that you really can't control. So you have to actually break it down to, hey, not I want to be a famous author, but I'll write one chapter today. I'll call three publishers today. 
I will enjoy my time writing. That's actually kind of the key to getting out of this treadmill of like, what can you actually do? What can you actually control? What can you actually enjoy? And for what it's worth, this promise that you're going to change the world probably has more to do with capitalism than the kingdom of God. Like capitalism has this assumption of growth, right? That every event is supposed to be bigger than the last one, right? Like that's the assumption. That your business is always supposed to be bigger tomorrow than it was yesterday. That every show is a means to a bigger show. That every job and degree is a step up the ladder. Nothing is an end in itself. Everything is a means to a bigger future. You know what I'm talking about? That's not necessarily what God promises us. Success in the kingdom of God uses biological metaphors, right? That include things like planting, growing, waiting, scattering, pruning, even dying. Visions of growth in the New Testament are very different than the sense of perpetual getting bigger and more influential. Success in the kingdom of God can look like gathering 12 followers, ending with 11, and dying along the way. And we know that the gospel lifts up the foolish things, the shameful things, the powerless things, the unimportant things in this world. And so one of the most Jesus things you can do is actually embrace your irrelevance, your powerlessness, your weakness, your flaws. As Paul says, God's power is made perfect in weakness. So Ecclesiastes tells us you're probably not going to change the world invites you into the freedom of that. <laughs> into the freedom of that irrelevance. If you have the courage to be a nobody, you might just be surprised what happens from there. That said, before you all quit your jobs and become vagrants, Ecclesiastes is not actually opposed to work, right? I think it's actually very pro-work. But it says that instead of living in the clouds, that we should live in the dirt. Instead of trying to change the world, we should focus on what we can actually touch. Work on what is close to you. Work on with what is within arm's reach. Which I think is a message we really need to hear in the 21st century when we can just be plugged into media all the time and find out about things that are happening in different states and different countries and all these places and all these things where we can get so outraged about things that we have very little control over. And so I think Ecclesiastes calls you back to just like, what can you actually touch? What's actually next to you? You might not be able to change the world, but you can actually influence the things that you can touch, right? So, what are some of the things you can touch? For starters, of course, yourself. I always like this quote. There you go, work on what you can actually touch. Yeah, keep going. This is quoted by Pete Scazzaro in his book. He says, when I was, this is a, a, a words of an old rabbi. He says, when I was young, I set out to change the world. When I grew older, I perce- perceived that this was too ambitious, so I set out to change my state. This too, I realized as I grew older, was too ambitious, so I set out to change my town. 
When I realized I could not even do this, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I know that I should have started by changing myself. If I had started with myself, maybe then I would have succeeded in changing my family, the town, or even the state. And who knows, maybe even the world. You can't change anyone else in this world, right? But you can change yourself. It's not always easy or fast, but you can control your habits, your disciplines, your media, your lifestyle. You can bathe yourself in prayer and learn to be patient. You can immerse yourself in God's love and learn to be a more loving person. You in some ways always be bound by you, right? But you can become the most loving, most Christ-like version of yourself. And that might feel small. It might feel like you're, you've like lost that millennial charge, right, to change the world. But I actually think it's huge. Like, I actually think this is like the most transformative, powerful thing you can do. I tend to think that the grocery store clerk who walks in great love actually has a greater impact on the world than like the entrepreneur who's kind of a jerk. Like, I really do. Because one starts lots of new stuff. The other actually brings something different into the world. And I think that matters. That like that's part of our vision, right? It's not to start lots of stuff. It's to be different. And we know from the world of marriage counseling that one person who changes themselves can actually change a marriage. And one person who changes themselves can actually change a culture. And one person who changes themselves can actually change an institution. And it has less to do with fixing everyone or innovative ideas, right? That you're going to fix everyone out there and being a different person within that system. You can't change the world, but you can change yourself. And at the end of the day, I actually think that's more important. And just as you can touch yourself, you can touch your neighbor. Like your actual neighbor, right? Not your conceptual neighbor, like the person who's next to you. Your physical neighbor, your coworker, the people that are next to you all the time. You can't fix them. But research shows that one of the most life-changing things is actual relational connection. You know what I mean? When two people actually legitimately connect and see each other and hear each other and have space for each other, it's a pretty transformative thing. So be a good listener and be curious and make time for that. Don't fix your neighbor, but love them and listen to them. And not, again, your conceptual neighbor or that person on social media, like your actual neighbor. There's a reason that Jesus simplified the mission to love God and love your neighbor, right? This might be the two most transformative things we can actually do. And lastly, your neighborhood. And I say this kind of in the area of social media and 24-7 media. There's a lot of things to be outraged in this world. And there's a lot of things to be outraged about that we can't do much about. So just as a rule, if you're upset about what's going on in our nation's schools, like turn off the social media and volunteer for the PTA. And if you're worried about the kids in our country, turn off the cable news and volunteer for Little League. You guys know what I mean? Like, and I say this as someone who believes Christians, like, should keep up with the news and should have political opinions. 
we're just like, there's just only so much you can do about the world out there. And every day, if you're spending all your time on the world out there, you're missing the neighborhood right in front of you where you might actually be able to have a meaningful impact. Now, not all neighborhood initiatives will be successful. Again, you can't change anyone, but I think we'll get a lot further if we, if we aim to change our neighborhood than if we aim to change the world. Amen? So overall, I think there's this message in Ecclesiastes of get your head out of the clouds and put your hands in the dirt. And lastly, if Ecclesiastes is in in some way a rejection of ambition and too much meta-thinking and dreaming, on on the other hand, it's a call to presence. Just as you can't control what is beyond you, make sure you see what is right in front of you and do your best to enjoy it. There's a little bit of a thesis statement in Ecclesiastes too. I imagine we'll come back to this one, but if you want to go to that um, next one. Ecclesiastes 2.24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. How's that feel? Oil as like different from from product. Like yeah. The, yeah. I don't know. That would be, that's hitting me funny. Yeah. Like maybe the most important thing is like enjoy the thing that's right in front of you. Don't get lost in what's a million miles ahead or a million miles above. But like, can you actually enjoy the thing right in front of you? Because that is a gift of God. And there's probably like a positive way to think about that. And I, I kind of got lost in a little bit of a depressive way to think about that this week. I was thinking of that old movie, As Good As It Gets. Do you remember that movie? That Jack Nicholson just has that line of like, what if this is as good as it gets? Like, we've been given this promise that tomorrow's always supposed to be bigger and better and more fuller than tomorrow. But maybe not. Maybe this is it. What if this is as good as it gets? And again, that can be super depressing, but also like how wonderfully freeing that can be because that means you're not supposed to put off your happiness till tomorrow. You're not supposed to put off your joy till tomorrow. You're not supposed to live in these places, right, of like, I'll be happy then. I will enjoy things then. I'll enjoy my kids then. I'll enjoy my house then. I'll enjoy my job then. You know what I'm saying? How lost we get in that world of like, once we get there, then we'll be happy. But tomorrow's not actually a promise. So you might as well get on with enjoying today. And be happy with things just as they are. Maybe today isn't a way station to something bigger or something better. Maybe today is the gift itself. And again, what capitalism teaches us is that everything is a means to something bigger, right? This job is a means to a better job. This person's a means to more of a a more influential network. Everything is a means to something more. But I think Ecclesiastes says, get over it. Let things be ends in themselves, right? Let the job be an end in itself. Take joy in your toil because you have it. And that's all.
Take joy in the person in front of you. Enjoy them. Enjoy that person who's right in front of you. Not because of what it says about you or where that person is going to lead you, but just because there's a person in front of you who is created in the image of God. Let the sunset just be a sunset, not a means to upgrade your Instagram. I read an article this week that says you'll actually be way happier if you aim to be a good teacher, not an important teacher, or whatever your profession is. If you aim for relational health rather than resume success. So aim to be a good teacher and not an important teacher. Research shows you'll be much happier if you do. Kurt Vonnegut tells this story um, of his uncle, Alex. And I'm just going to read it to you. It's not a long story. And then we'll wrap up here. He's talking about his uncle, David, and then he switches and says, But I had a good uncle, my late uncle, Alex. He was my father's kid brother, a childless graduate of Harvard who was an honest life insurance salesman in Indianapolis. He was well-read and wise, and his principal complaint about other human beings was that they so seldom noticed it when they were happy. So when we were drinking lemonade under an apple tree in the summer, say, and talking lazily about this and that, almost buzzing like honeybees, Uncle Alex would suddenly interrupt the agreeable blather to exclaim, If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. So I do the same now, and so my kids and grandkids, and I urge you to please notice when you are happy, and exclaim or murmur or thank at some point, If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. So that's your homework this week. I want you at least once this week to notice when you're happy. To notice the thing in front of you. And to use that phrase, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Don't ruin every good experience by thinking about what's next or how it can lead to something else or how it can lead to some bigger ambition. But be present and notice if this isn't nice. I don't know what is. Got it? I'm going to quiz you all next week. So I expect everyone to try this at least once. Okay, how's everybody doing? Ecclesiastes is good for the soul? For this one. Again, this is, you know, there, you could probably, like, find other scriptural points to kind of, like, push back on this a little bit. And again, if we're getting a little too depressed, one more time, we have a uh, keep going. There he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in case you need him, Tim Tebow is here to comfort you on the other side. But let's wrap up. The world is, in fact, a big place. It's been spinning for a long time before you got here. It will most likely keep spinning for a long time after you leave. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises, and all streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. This reality can lead you into nihilism, which our author flirts with, the belief that there is nothing, or it can lead you into joy and presence. 
your life may be less important than you think. So go hug your kids and enjoy some ice cream and spend too long talking to your neighbor on the porch. Turn off your phone and grow some tomatoes. Give up on being an important person and try and be a good person. And take joy in your daily work, not because it's a stepping stone to being rich and famous, but because it's fun or because you can or because maybe this is as good as it gets. Just this. However imperfect the day, try coming back to this. Just this. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Amen? Amen. Lord, as we go throughout our week, help us not to give away our week and being somewhere else. Help us not to lose our life and always dwelling on what's next or what's bigger. Help us, Lord, to find the spaces to say, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us work to do, a world to live in, people to love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.